All right, well, welcome back to Wellspring. And I am so happy this morning to announce that Ben is here. He's going to teach us a new lesson, uh, a new lesson on biblical counseling and caring for one another in the body. Um, so before he comes up, we're going to take a minute to review our disciplines. So go ahead and turn your notebooks over. And we're going to take a look at those disciplines. Um, I think by this point, we're all probably getting pretty familiar with them, but you know, that's the point of um, what we're doing. So let's review them together again. All right, so the purpose of Wellspring, the reason why we're here, the reason that this ministry exists, is to train us how to shepherd our hearts towards the Lord using the Word of God. And the end result of all that shepherding is that we live differently. We're not just doing it for no reason, it's so that we live differently. We live differently from the world because our lives have been fundamentally changed by the gospel. And our weekly review of these disciplines is a part of that training process. That's why we do it. And it serves to remind us of why we're here. Um, it serves to remind us what we need to be working towards. And then it gives us some tools for that training. And it all starts with the heart, right? The heart is the foundation. It's the, the main building block, like our verse Proverbs 4.23 says, everything flows out of our heart. There isn't a word, a thought, a deed that didn't first start in our heart, which is why it is so important that we are faithful to shepherd our hearts. And we've learned a lot this year about shepherding our hearts with the word of God, with our Bibles open, right, when we're reading and when we're studying, um, and then also with our Bibles closed, with what we have memorized, meditated upon, prayed about, and so on. So let's read discipline one. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. All right, so our second building block is our home. What flows out of our heart, first and foremost, <laughs> flows into our homes. That is where we are the most. So our spouse, our children, our grandchildren, roommates, friends, neighbors, family, whoever it might be, they are directly impacted by how we care for our hearts, right? Either in a good God-honoring way or in a negative worldly way. The impact is there either way. Discipline two says, the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. God is still the focus. God's word is still the plumb line and the standard. And then our third block is ministry. So this is happening in conjunction with caring for our hearts and caring for our homes. We must keep our heart fixed on God. We must keep our God-ordained ministry within our homes a priority. And we must step into the church, whether that be Sunday morning, small group, wellspring, um, Sunday evenings, conversations you're having with people, and so on, and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So if you've noticed in everything I've talked about so far, I've talked about that our main influence, our influences are to be the gospel and God's word. And that means that any influence we listen to outside of that is not God-honoring. It's actually damaging to our hearts and to our homes and to our church. So what am I talking about? What are these influences? Worldly voices, right? They can come from TV, commercials, movies, social media, influencers, books, podcasts, your best friend, your mom. <laughs> it's anything you hear that isn't grounded in truth from God's word. 
Can you hear truth from a podcast? Yes, if it's grounded in God's word. Can you hear truth from your best friend or your mom? Yes, if it's grounded in God's word. Can you hear truth from social media? I highly doubt it. But yes, if it's grounded in God's word. So you see what the standard is. The standard is God's word. Not opinions, not feelings, not pithy sayings. It's God's word. So when you hear something, run and check God's word. Is it there? Then it's truth. Is it not? Then reject it. So listen to a few of these sayings and see if they sound familiar to you. You are enough. You can't love others until you love yourself. Follow your heart. Accept yourself. Be proud of who you are. Love, love of self starts with acceptance. You deserve happiness. Know your worth. Have you ever heard or read some of those? They're everywhere. They're on t-shirts and birthday cards and all over social media. All right, now listen to these. You were dead in your sin, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We are created for good works. Those who were in the flesh are not able to please God. Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners, whom I am the foremost. Be imitators of God. Walk in love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a sacrifice. Look carefully how you walk, redeeming the time. For sin shall not be master over you. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be wise in your own mind. Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Those are a pretty stark contrast to those previous sayings that we find on birthday cards, right? We must fight those worldly influences with truth from God's word. Now, I recently taught in Keepers of the Faith, which is the third through fifth grade Sunday evening class, and they're learning about the Bible. They're learning about where it came from and the different books and the sections and how to read it and how to memorize and so on. <clears throat> and I shared this quote with them. It's from John MacArthur. I'm going to share it with you guys. It's not enough just to study the Bible. We must meditate upon it. In a very real sense, we are giving our brain a bath. We are washing it in the purifying solution of God's word. So let us be women who are faithful to give our brains a bath, <laughs> to soak in God's word, not listening to the voices of the world, but listening to God's word, reading, meditating, and memorizing it. Because that's how we are able to shepherd our hearts, care for those in our homes, and minister in the church. Let's pray, and then Ben's going to come up. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful morning, and thank you for the gift of another opportunity to come together and hear what your word has to say. God, I pray that we sit here as women who want to grow and change because we want to bring you glory. We want to look more like you. We want to reflect you in this dark world. And God, I pray that you only increase our love for your word and the way that we cherish it, never take it for granted. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I've had an opportunity to teach and build a number of times. This is the first time I've got to teach in Wellspring, so it's a little more intimidating than talking to a bunch of men. 
Um, but uh, Janet and Melissa had asked me to, to come and talk to you all about biblical counseling. And if you don't know, we are a biblical counseling church. We have a we're a biblical counseling training center. We are, The first level of training has about 40 hours of material. And so how do you fit all of that into one hour? You don't. But we what doesn't want to just take t- today just to put a few things in front of you. Um, and, and I was talking to recently to a new member of this church, and they're so thankful about just the um, the really the legacy of the Build and Wellspring Ministries of this church. Lessons that have been able to be refined over years and years of being taught. So you need to be a little bit content because this is not one of those lessons. It's the first time it's being taught, so it probably is not it. It's not yet what it probably will be, but I trust and pray that it would be encouraging to you nonetheless. So I've titled today's message, Soul Care in the Church. Soul Care in the Church. And I want to start today just looking at, um, talking about secular therapy. Um, Some surprising statistics, and if you look on your handout, um, I've got a lot of notes for you. Some areas we're going to skip over, but you've got the notes in front of you. Also, you'll notice I have a lot of scripture that's actually included in your notes. We're going to be in a lot of passages this morning, so we probably won't do a lot of turning back and forth. So you have it in front of you. So uh, hopefully that will be an aid and allow us to get through all this material. <clears throat> but according to a 2023 study, 55% of millennials and Generation Z, that is the adults, of those groups that are in between the ages of 18 and 43 responded saying that they 55% of them in 2023 have gone to therapy or are currently going to therapy. It's a pretty, pretty high percentage. Uh, nearly 40% plan to go to therapy in 2024. Uh, one in five are currently in therapy. And about 25% of that group plans to remain in therapy forever. They never see an end. Uh, It is just part of life. It is a normal part of life to expect, I'm going to be in therapy. Interestingly, for those that choose not to go to therapy, the number one reason for people not going is not because they don't think they need it, um, but 58% say just because it's too expensive. So we have a culture of people that have been convinced that therapy is how we either solve our problems or maybe don't solve them, but just how we cope with them. Top three reasons that Gen Z and millennials go to therapy by the same survey are anxiety, depression, and stress. Now, there's some evidence that some people go to therapy just to have someone to talk to. They want social connection. Uh, Maybe they feel like they're a victim of some kind and going to therapy allows them to identify as that. There's still a significant number of people who are seeking therapy because they are looking for help, looking for help in managing their problems, looking for help for changing their behavior. So enter cognitive behavior therapy or CBT. So we'll look in the next section. We want to talk about behavior driven approaches to, to change and while there's a lot of different models of therapy, one of the most widely practiced is actually cognitive behavior therapy in the United States. It's be, kind of become the go-to intervention for mental disorders in the United States. 
And actually being trained and being competent in CBT is actually one of the accreditation criteria for seeking for actually for a residency program in psychiatry at hospitals in the US. It's so popular that psychiatry practice guidelines for almost every single mental disorder include CBT as the first line therapy or a first line therapy. But CBT is also popular among many Christians who believe that it's able to be effectively integrated into a Christian worldview. In fact, many of the behavioral interventions of CBT look very similar at first glance to strategies that Christians engage to put off sin. It emphasizes identifying faulty core beliefs, it emphasizes identifying irrational thinking and then confronting them with truth statements. And then altering someone's, one's behavior by changing one's thinking. And that sounds biblical, right? right? Paul instructed believers to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Romans 12.2. So this has the appearance of biblical change, but they're very different. At its core... CBT denies the fundamental spiritual component of human humanity. Right? We are made of body and soul. But often CBT just sees us as physical beings whose emotions can be manipulated through training and through intervention. And there really is no place in CBT for the reality of the heart as scripture views it. CBT would tell us that what comes out of us proceeds from our habits and our conditioning and our experiences. But Scripture tells us that what comes out of us proceeds from our hearts. Matthew 15, 18. More than that, CBT, the answer to the problem is found in the supposed right truth statements. But for Christians, the answer to our problems is actually found in the person who is the truth. Jesus Christ. God himself is the means of our transformation and the work of Christ and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our hearts. Our problems are not just conditioned behavior, but sin. We sin by nature. We sin by choice. They are acts of rebellion against a holy God. And the only solution to these problems is Jesus Christ himself. We need the gospel for true change. Well, CBT also has a different goal of change. The goal in CBT is usually determined by the counselor and the counselee or therapist, kind of determining what's healthy, what would be normal, what do we want to prioritize for the, the goal of our sessions together. But God's goal is different. He desires for us to be reconciled to him through Christ and then having been reconciled, he is actually in the process of transforming us more and more into his image. Right? What is God's will? It's there on the page for you. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Thessalonians 4.13. So why, why are so many Christians duped by <coughs> therapies and models like CBT? Well, I think we can all be tempted to equate behavior modification with truth sanctification. 
Secondly, it can really be easy for us just to focus on practical common sense solutions. Things are going to help me with my near problem, my presenting problem. Instead of actually helping somebody prioritize their relationship with Christ and dealing with the heart level roots of sin. True Christ-likeness, true sanctification is not just behavior modification. We, we know that. We aim for change at the heart level that then flows out of the heart into godly Christ-like behavior for the glory of God. So in talking about how people change, CBT just misses the part of man, the soul, or what Scripture often calls the heart, and biblical change must involve the heart. If we're to help others change, we must care for their soul. And when we talk about intentionally speaking truth into the life of another believer to help them change, at the heart level, what we're talking about in our circles is biblical counseling. Believers counsel one another with the truth of God's word, addressing the heart with the goal of Christ-likeness, with the goal of God's glory. And so at Grace Bible Church, we are a biblical counseling church. We are a training center for the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. We love biblical counseling. So that's what we're talking about today. But there can be some drawbacks to that term, biblical counseling. What do we think of when we hear the term counseling? So if you want to go to number C or letter C in your outline, biblical soul care and biblical counseling. So I've actually titled today's message, not biblical counseling, not an introduction to biblical counseling, but soul care. How do we care for souls in the church? And that's for a couple of reasons. Number one, not all that claims to be biblical counseling is truly biblical counseling. We've mentioned attempts to integrate secular therapy, such as CBT, with the Bible, and usually we'll find that going under the term Christian counseling. Um, usually when the term is used, biblical counseling, they're a little more closer to what we mean by it, but not always. Often we can see the same sort of integration happening within those who take the label biblical counselor. So we just want to be careful for that, careful of that. So if we, if we think of those so-called biblical counselors who integrate worldly principles into the church, then biblical counseling isn't really a helpful term for us. But another drawback to the term biblical counseling is that it can be really easy for us to think about what the world means by counseling and then take those ideas and unwittingly kind of infuse them into what we think of when we think of counseling. So we begin to think biblical counseling is just an alternative to psychotherapy or, or maybe it's therapy and counseling, but it's with the Bible, but everything else is really the same. No, no, actually what we're after is fundamentally different than what the world uses to address problems. And so I just want to look at a couple of phenomena actually in the biblical counseling movement that might indicate sometimes that we've allowed some of, in the way we talk about it, that we might have allowed some of the world's counseling model, therapy model to sort of creep in to the church. One, just to observe the formalization of counseling. The idea that counseling necessarily involves a formal meeting between two people, a counselee, a counselor, one who is in need of help and says, hey, I need counseling. <coughs> Second phenomena is just the idea of counseling as either identity or maybe, maybe as a stigma. 
Um, just as the world talks about people being in therapy, we can talk about people being in counseling as they're seeking help with biblical change. In the world, we'll actually see people that we're being in therapy as a badge, as an identity. It's their social connection. might be their association as a victim. And in the church, count, being in counseling can easily become someone's identity. Their badge, their access to the leaders of the church. In the worst cases, people might be caught in sin and we might read publicly about somebody that's been caught in sin, a believer, and they are now in counseling. But we actually don't hear anything of their repentance for sin, their heart change. For them, counseling is the remedy, not Christ-likeness. So we can be- allow counseling to be sort of similar to that. Counseling can also be stigmatized. Oh, they're in counseling. Talking about somebody in the church. And we can unwittingly create three classes of people. The counselor, the counselees, or those in counseling, and those not in counseling. I want to be in that last group, those that are not in counseling. And so we run from it. I don't need counseling. And lastly, the professionalization of the counselor. The therapy model includes a person in need of change and a trained, credentialed, paid professional who has the answers. If you want to change, you go to the person with the credential. In the church, there can be an assumption that if I need help, what I really need is formal counseling. I need to seek out the professional certified counselor. I need to seek out the... Well, what we can do is we can actually replace the the secular therapist with the biblical counselor as the right way to seek out change. If I want to change, I need to seek out the counselors. Maybe, do I, do I need counseling? I'll contact a certified counselor, even outside the church. Do I know someone else that needs counseling? I'll, I'll refer them to a professional or a credentialed counselor or a certified counselor. I'll refer them to the pastors of this church. I'm certainly not qualified. Right, these phenomena, the formalization, the embracing of counseling as identity or stigma, the professionalization, have at times led churches who love biblical counseling, like we love biblical counseling, to miss key areas of what the New Testament teaches us about the task of soul care in the church. So if we hear the term biblical counseling and what it brings to mind is a formal meeting with an expert and someone in need of help, and that's thing for really, really big problems then we may have imported some ideas of the therapy model into our view of soul care. So in an effort to maybe leave behind some of the potential baggage and help us think about counseling in a new light, I want to instead talk about soul care in the church. And as a disclaimer, I have no intention to dislodge the term biblical counseling from your vocabulary or the church's vocabulary. But I think today it might be more helpful for us to think about the role each and every one of us has to play in providing soul care in the church. So what I want to do is I want to think through maybe some of the foundation that's already been laid in Wellspring for providing soul care in the church. 
And if you just think through both the practical and maybe some of the theological foundations, if you think through back maybe to our first or second Wellspring lesson, biblical the biblical transformation of man. We got the we got the the fold out, and what's on there? We have man as he's separated as he as he dies. There's a separation of the immaterial from the material. Man is an is a composite of the material part of man and the immaterial. The soul is eternal. And it is the soul that is the real you that must be cared for. Second, I want to think back to the discipline one emphasis on caring for our heart, shepherding our heart or guarding our heart. heart. Jacob Hantlet taught that message. And I've called this lesson soul care, but could have just as easily called it heart care. The foundational principles of caring for our own hearts are the same as caring for the hearts and souls of others. Discipline two and three are really about the believer who has cared well for their own heart, cared well for their own soul, with God's word, stepping into their homes, stepping into the church, and actually extending that same care that's been directed at our hearts, at our souls, into the hearts and souls of others. I want to think back to, uh, I know Lori Hantla taught a lesson on shepherding our hearts day by day. And uh, you should have actually walked through the downward spiral, or at least it was an attachment. All right, that downward spiral of despair and distress. When we tell ourselves that something that we desire, maybe even a good desire, is something that we actually deserve. And then our heart turns that into a demand, an expectation, something we feel that we have a right to and we don't get it. We resort to despair, we strike out, we lash out, we sin against others. And really those, again, are the, those are the principles, the same principles that we shepherd our own hearts with. And those are the principles that we want to step into the lives of one another in the church and help them to see. If you've been in Building Wellspring, you may not have sat through the 40 hours of biblical counseling training but you've already been well-equipped for many of the tools that you need to care well for your own heart and soul and then to step into the lives of those in your home, those in the church. And we see that, and that's the emphasis, right? We, we looked at a lesson on women encouraging women. That is soul care practice in the church. We looked at another lesson on the one another's. Remember the emphasis on caring for one another in 1 Corinthians? Bearing one another's burdens. You know, I think of bearing one another's burdens, and it's so easy to, to think, oh, this is, this is making meals for somebody. Well, yeah, it is. But it's specifically in the context of helping another believer who has actually been trapped by sin and other believers coming alongside this person and helping them to, to deal with that sin, helping them to walk in obedience. In that lesson, we talked about the the goals of edifying one another, building one another up, and admonishing one another. All of those commands, these one another's of Scripture, are part of soul care in the church. So I want to ask, whose job is soul care? Part, I think it's number one, Roman numeral one. Whose job is soul care? Is it the therapist? Is it the biblical counselor? Is it the pastor? Does the pastor care for the spirit, the psychologist for the soul, and the doctor for the body, right? That's the old distinction. 
We won't cover it in depth here because it's been covered elsewhere. But man is divided not into really what Scripture says into two parts, the material and the immaterial. Distinctions that would separate the soul and the spirit are really not warranted, and which means that the areas that we are to care for in one another is the same. There's no distinction where the church cares for the spirit and the psychologist for the soul. No, it is one immaterial you, and it is for the church. It is for, it is with, for God's word. The church, not the psychologist or psychiatrist, cares from the soul. The question is, within the church, whose job then is it to care for the heart, for the soul, the spirit, the inner man, and all of the various functions of that inner man, the, the mind, the conscience, the will, the heart? Can the believer just leave this to the professionals? Or, or maybe in our context... Can we just leave it to the certified ACBC certified counselors? Can we just leave it to the pastors? Well, before answering that, let's just define what is soul care. I've got a definition for you. And this is the definition from Dale Johnson. He is the current head of the ACBC, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And it's his definition. I've inserted the word soul care in there. So biblical counseling or soul care is the personal discipleship ministry of God's people to others under the oversight of God's church. Dependent upon the authority and sufficiency of God's word through the work of the Holy Spirit. Biblical counseling or soul care seeks to reorient disordered desires, affections, thoughts, behaviors, and worship toward a God-designed anthropology in an effort to restore people to a right relationship with right fellowship with God and others. This is accomplished by speaking the truth in love and applying scripture to the need of the moment by comforting the suffering and calling sinners to repentance, thus working to make them mature as they abide in Jesus Christ. If you listen to that definition, your heart's just saying, but we do that. Hopefully. And that's right. This isn't, this isn't the, the pastor's job solely. This isn't the certified council. This is, this is the church. And, and below it, I have a few sections and bolded sections of this quote that I just want to look at a little bit more in depth. First, it is discipleship. Right? The Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing the name, them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded. This, this is the teaching component of the Great Commission. Teaching component to believers that all the church is to be involved in. That's what soul care is. We're teaching one another to be obedient to what Jesus Christ has commanded. So soul care, biblical counseling is discipleship. Discipleship, our own discipleship, is the intentional pursuit of being conformed to Christ. And therefore, stepping into the lives of others in discipleship relationships is helping them to become conformed to the image of Christ. Do you have a relationship in the body where you're seeking to help another believer understand Jesus' commands and then help them obey them? Then you're involved in the disciple-making process. 
This is great commission work. And then you're, that means you're already engaged in biblical counseling. You're already engaged in soul care. You're already engaging in soul care when you do this in your small group. When you meet individually with a mom for coffee to help speak into her parenting or help her love her husband or encourage her to trust in God's sovereignty and Jesus' promises when suffering or when sinned against. When we think of counseling, don't think of sterile, clinical, professionalized, formal sessions where one person says, I need counseling, and they've scheduled an appointment. No, think of two believers having a conversation with an intentional focus to help the other one grow in conformity to Christ. In the context of that conversation, you might actually have each believer counseling one another. These are just normal conversations. You know, it's not actually uncommon in this church for someone to request counseling. And so they meet with somebody and they say, you know what? This just kind of feels like a conversation. That's right. With our Bibles open. Next, I want to look at number three from the counseling definition. It's a function of the church under the oversight of the church. Can God use conversations with somebody outside of your local church for good? Of course. But the primary means of soul care that God has ordained is between the members of the church. And some of the passages we'll look at later will sort of highlight that a little bit. Four, it is dependent upon the authority and sufficiency of God's word through the work of the Holy Spirit. When we practice biblical counseling or soul care, we're not simply sharing our opinions, our experiences, what's worked for us, but we're pointing others to the truth found in God's word and helping them to submit to it, to walk by faith, to believe it. And then look at the last phrase in the definition. Working to make them mature as they abide in Christ. Right? We are aiming at mature believers which comes through the path of them cultivating their relationship with Jesus Christ. Not at just changing the behavior, but cultivating their faith and dependence and, and relationship with Jesus Christ and serving Him and following in obedience to Him to please Him. Letter B, I've got a couple descriptions of what soul care is not. And we'll read through this quickly. It's not an autonomous ministry apart from the local church. It's not an activity reserved for the experts. It's not an optional ministry. It's not a separate entity apart from discipleship. Right? Soul care and biblical counseling are discipleship. It's not insensitive or uncaring. Right? Galatians 6.1 says we do this with the spirit of gentleness. And also looking to our own selves. So next I want to look at the mandate. The mandate for soul care in the church. And First, I just want to look at Paul's example. Before we do that, you may have heard the term euthetic counseling. Um, ACBC used to be known as uh, the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors. Uh, that word neuthetic is just a, the Greek word for counsel or the Greek word for admonishment. And so in some of these passages below, I've actually underlined the word admonishment or admonishing because what, it, what the Bible says about counseling is embedded within these terms for admonishing 
and similar ideas. That word isn't always used, but just to kind of give you that as a highlight to what, is the script, what does Scripture say about it. First, I want to look at Colossians 1, 29. And this really, really is just a key verse for us understanding you know, what this work of soul care is all about. Colossians 1, 28 says, Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. We need wisdom for soul care. We're teaching all men with all wisdom. We also, that, and that wisdom means both wise and godly living, and it assumes some level of biblical knowledge so as to speak the truth. So we don't dispense what we haven't first benefited from in our own hearts. Skip to number C, letter C, Acts 20.31, just again looking at Paul's example. Therefore, be watchful, remembering the night and day, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Notice he says each one. This was individual admonishment. This wasn't just a pulpit ministry. This was individual care for believers. And in this case, it was actually elders that were in need of this sort of care. Everyone in the church is in need of this sort of care, admonishment. And it was also compassionate admonishment with tears. Paul wasn't distant or clinical in this. These are people he knew, people he loved, and those are, that's the platform with which it, he spoke and admonished and counseled these, these elders. Letter D, 1 Corinthians 4, 14. Paul writes, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Right, this, he said these are his children. This, this admonishment was familial. This wasn't a stranger in a counseling room with an appointment that you went in to see. No, these are people he loved, whom he considered his children. They were, they were part of the, his family. And it, his goal was not to shame them, but to help bring about change. So what is this mandate for soul care? Well, let's first look at the mandate for pastors in the church. Hebrews 13, 17 specifically says, Pastors, keep watch over your souls. Well, that's terrifying. Ephesians 4, 11, very familiar passage that we've talked about this year, is he gave some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So there there's a pastoral role for equipping. And we'll get to what the, the, the believer's role in a second. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul instructs Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, and then reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience. So whether it is proclamation for Timothy as a pastor or individual level where I am rebuking, reproving, exhorting, it is to be done with patience. Let's look now to the mandate for the believer. What passages speak to the believer's role in soul care? Well, we already looked at Matthew 28, the Great Commission. 
Secondly, let's look at Ephesians 11, or 4.11, right? The, the pastors and teachers equip the saints for the work of service. And then what is that work of service? It is for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Right? Believers have been equipped by the pastors to labor to do the work of service that is aiming at the maturity of the church. Ephesians 4.15c talks about the manner in which that is to be done. It is speaking truth in love so that we might grow up in all respects into Him who is the head, that is Christ. Maturity is growing into Christ, becoming like Christ. Ephesians 4.16 From whom the whole body, being joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Right? Each member engaged in the process of speaking truth to one another in love, building one another up, encouraging one another, doing the work of service, aiming at maturity in Christ in each member, all working together, that is the vision of Paul for the church. We can look to Colossians 3.16, the word of Christ must dwell within you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When Scripture flows out of believer's speech, and singing, this is soul care. And notice just the encouragement to do this in a way that is with gratitude. As we speak to one another, aiming at impossible works, impossible tasks, to recognize it can only be because of the fact that God has actually done that work in us and is the one who must work in the life of, the other, of that believer. First letter G, First Thessalonians five fourteen. Notice who this command is given to. This this term, we urge you, brothers, and we know that's not just the men. That is the term for the body of Christ, the church in Thessalonica. We urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly. Is that term counsel the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. All right. This command was plural. It was given to the brothers believers of the church. This is not one man's role, the role of the pastors of the church. And let's look at Romans 15, 14. If I could, I'd, if you put an asterisk next to this one, this is just incredibly foundational to what it means to care for one another in the church. Romans 15, 14. But I myself... am convinced about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, having been filled with the knowledge, with all knowledge, and being able also to admonish one another. Paul was convinced of the Roman believers' ability to admonish one another. They were competent and able to counsel one another. 
These were first century, predominantly Roman believers coming out of a pagan background, relatively new in their faith in Christ, long before the alleged discovery of modern psychiatry and modern, modern therapies, and yet God, through Paul, could identify them as being fully equipped and able to carry out the task of soul care in the church, able to admonish one another. Believer, if you know God's word, if you've been caring for your own heart and soul with God's word, and it has had an impact on your life, then you've been equipped for others in the body, to care for others in the body. And yeah, there are areas that are messy that you maybe aren't from, as familiar with what God's word has to say. That's an area that you can grow in. And it doesn't mean pastors aren't there to, to help but to the extent that you know what God's word has to say on a specific matter and has impacted your own life, then you are able to step into another's life, humbly and gently speak truth to them. You're competent to counsel. You're able to admonish. Lastly, the next verse is just about the mandate for soul care is Galatians 6.1. We referred to it, brothers, again, all the believers there in the regions of Galatia. Even if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fill the law of Christ. Who is to fulfill the law of Christ? All those who are brothers. All those who are spiritual, that is not who are on a higher spiritual plane, but those who have actually have the Holy Spirit, who have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. That's the spiritual man. That's the spiritual woman who is then called to labor in a gentle spirit to help brothers, sisters who have been caught in sin. So whose job is soul care? Whose job is biblical counseling? bottom of that section, both the pastors and the individual members are to care for the body of Christ and caring for one another's souls. And if you don't leave, if you leave with nothing else today, leave with this. As a believer, you're to care for the souls of others in this church. You've been given a lifelong ministry of discipleship, counseling, and helping others in this church walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what disciplines two and three are about. We'll turn a corner to the purpose of soul care. And first we'll talk about the kind of the ultimate aim of soul care. And no surprise, at first it is God's glory. Some passages you can look at there. Secondly, it is, this is kind of more of a subset of God's glory. It is restored image bearing. A man was created to bear God's image. Sin comes in and it mars that ability, that reflection of God's glory. It's not stamped out, but it's no longer what it once was. It's no longer the reflection of God's glory in the way that it was intended. But then Jesus came and he was the perfect image bearer. He is the perfect image bearer. And the gospel came into our lives and it transformed us. And look at what Colossians 3.10, I think, says. It's under number four in this section. 
And you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Believers having been transformed by the gospel are actually in the process of being transformed, conformed into the image, according to the image of the one who created us. As individual believers are conformed more and more to Christ then, Christ's glory is put on increasing display in the lives of believers. And that's our ultimate aim. God's glory being manifested in trophies of his grace who increasingly reflect his glory. So let us see, what, do, what is the goal? What is the goal of, short, of soul care? What do we, maybe our, the, the secondary goal of what we're aiming at with our fellow believers Well, it's not digging into the subconscious. I have it listed there. It's not getting proper behavior. I just want my kids to obey. Those conversations we should have about that. It's not getting my, my husband to do the things that I want him to do. It's not even helping me just to control my speech so that I won't get myself in trouble with the things I say. We're not aiming at just building well-functioning families. There are well-functioning families, or at least families that aren't aren't running towards divorce. Uh, They may not be God-honoring, but is that what we're looking for? Just order in the household? No, the goal is Christ-likeness. Right? We know Romans 8, 28, 29 well. And end of... Beginning in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That great chain of salvation right there in the middle is God's plan to conform us to Christ's image. So we want to help believers pursue Christ's likeness. And we want to, not, not just for the sake of the outside change, we know that. They're only like Christ when their heart has been changed and then it overflows into what is seen on the outside. But we're also aiming at helping believers to be pleasing to the Lord. Right? Not This is not earning some sort of position with God. We can please Him. We know in the flesh, left in our sin, we cannot be pleasing to the Lord. But that's actually what God has done in transforming our hearts and rescuing us with the gospel is that we actually now have the ability to be honored to him, to please him, and that is the, the heart of the believer. And we want to help. Our, our goal isn't so much as to helping every believer, helping one another out of difficult situations. But actually, if God should choose to keep them in that situation, how can they be like Christ in that situation? How can they honor the Lord, please the Lord in that situation? That's what we're aiming at. God may not take them out of that difficult situation. No matter what they do, the abusive language that they're enduring, maybe in their home, may not change. But how do they respond? That's what we're after. So, what has God actually provided for us in this ministry of soul care? Third section is the the provisions for soul care and 
First and foremost, God has given us and has sufficiently equipped us with his word. A number of passages, you can look at these later. God's word is inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible. But look at number four. God's word is sufficient. God's word is sufficient. You know, I didn't put the whole verse on your pages. I'm going to actually turn there. Second Peter 1 Peter 1.3 says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Do we believe that God has actually given us everything that we need pertaining to life, pertaining to godliness in his word? His precious, magnificent promises are what's needed. He, he has sufficiently equipped us with that which is actually able to transform lives. Number five there, God's word is authoritative. God's word has authority over everyone, whether he is a Christian or not, whether he recognizes the authority of, of the God's word or not. Because the Bible comes from God, everything it says is true and authoritative. And God's word can and does speak to every issue that is necessary for life and godliness. It has ultimate authority. We have all the provision we need to care for souls in the church. The next section, letter, I think it's letter B, is soul care spirit driven. So how has God provided for soul care in the church? He's, he's efficiently equipped us with his word. And he's also given us his spirit. We Soul care is spirit driven. And just want to look at these. Who is the agent of change when we care for one another? I can't, no matter how loudly I talk, how softly I talk, how gently I speak, how much scripture I point to, my grasp of theology, I can't impress these things into the heart of a believer. I can't make them change. Right? It is the Holy Spirit who is actually the agent of change. And so since that is true, we should, we should expect him to use the means that he has chosen to produce that change. That's a transformation of the heart by his grace, by his sovereign grace and working. We should expect him to use the men and women he has de designated to produce and facilitate that change in the church. And since he is the one who brings about change, not us, there is actually hope that the person whom we're caring for, if they confess Jesus Christ as Lord, that they can change. And it's not dependent upon our grasp of the width, the breadth and the depth of everything that we could possibly know about counseling, about problems, about physiology. God's word is sufficient and God's spirit can use that word and will use that word. I want to jump down to soul care is Christ focused. Um, in particular, I want to focus on the fact that 
Um, it's not what we bring in our intelligence, but it's actually what Christ brings who, that enables change. What Christ, who Christ is and what he did. Number two, it is through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God. Right? Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross is the means of change. Soul care is focused on Christ. It's through Christ. And its standard is Christ. Christ is the standard. We, t- we talked about men being conformed. We're laboring to present every man complete in Christ, mature in Christ. Remember that we are to reflect the image of God. But Christ, Colossians 1.15, is the image of the invisible God. So we're aiming, the standard, the standard of our care is actually we're aiming at the standard of Christ. And Jesus Christ is also the normal man. What do we mean by that? Well, secular systems usually try to define behavior that is normal and not normal. So how, how is this person abnormal? Aberrant behavior What is a normal amount of fear and anxiety and what's abnormal? But the challenge is that for secular systems, there is no true definition of what is normal. So how do we help when there is no agreed upon standard of what is normal behavior? Is it just what most people act like? Well, all people are sinners. All people are in rebellion against God. Is that normal? Biblical Christianity is different. We actually have an objective basis for what it means to be normal when it comes to human experience. And Jesus Christ is the standard of what it means to be normal. What it means to be human. God created man perfect in the garden. Adam was normal until sin. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, was normal man as he was intended and designed. Yes, he was both God and man, but in his humanity, he was human as humanity was intended. Mark Jones says, the eternal son had to take into union with himself a complete human nature so that we might one day know what it means to be human, completely restored in the image of God without defilement. Dale Johnson says, Jesus was the true human. He lived as God designed man to live, worshiping God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength while loving his neighbor. We were created to glorify God with all of who we are, and then sin warps our design to honor God and actually dehumanizes us. We are not as God created man to be because of sin. Thus, we can recognize what is normal based upon seeing how Jesus lived his life. Secular culture has no way to define normal, but we can define normal humanity according to Jesus. And our aim is conformity to that image. 
number four is in the provisions that God has given us for soul care is that it is accompanied by Christ. Think back to the Great Commission. Teaching them to keep all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In soul care, we have, and in discipleship, we have the promise that God is actually, Jesus Christ is actually with us personally in that endeavor. Well, I want to look at some just some key considerations as we go after this task of soul care in the church. First is just be involved. We, we saw Paul's example of familial relationships with those whom he, he cared for. Build a Christ-focused relationship with another believer where you can aim yourself intentionally and place yourself in a position to help them love Christ and aim at maturity. This is not being aloof and being distant like secular therapies. No, we want to actually enter into a close relationship, intimate relationship with them and be able to speak from that platform. But at the same time, we actually must always point them to their primary relationship, which is Jesus Christ. They are to be more concerned with what God thinks, what Christ thinks, than what you think as their friend. We want, as we step into others' lives, we want to be compassionate. We want to give hope. We want to be respectful. I'm just encouraged by Paul in writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. Here, the apostle who is literally writing scripture says, I am the chief of sinners. As we step in to help others, we recognize that And we are in need of the same transforming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in our own lives. We want to be patient. We want to be honest. Ephesians 4.15 says, speak the truth in love. We, We do speak truth. That's our content. But we do it in a way that's loving, that prefers the other person above ourselves. We want to be prayerful. And I think and this is this is important as we meet with one another, as we speak to one another, as we seek to help one another, express confidence in a true believer's ability to actually obey Scripture. Walk them through the promises of Romans 6 and our new relationship with sin as believers. If you don't know Romans 6, make it your goal to study that chapter, memorize it. Take them to passages like Philippians 1.6. Just underline this verse. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Change is hard. Repentance isn't easy. But God is actually working in you if you're in Christ. And he is actually committed to your change comfort one another. Put those sort of passages in front of someone that you're, you're coming alongside and give them confidence that they can actually obey, not in their own strength, because God is actually committed to their, to their change. When we talk, we want to inspire hope. Help people re- recognize that man, what they're dealing with is not new. 
It's no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God's word is sufficient. It is sufficient because there is nothing new since scripture has been written. <coughs> scripture is sufficient. It can dress everything. Yes, there are new manifestations of the same sins, but the sin is the same. The man's heart is the same. We want to point them to Christ. Remember, Christ was tempted just like we were. We, instill, we want to express and instill confidence that God's word actually has the answers to their problems. I may not always know what those answers are. Say, so, you know what? Can I, can I get back to you on that? Can I go and spend some time looking things up? Let me go talk to somebody else. And then come back to that person. They don't, need, they don't need to go talk to somebody else all the time. Use that as an opportunity to grow your, in your own knowledge and then come back and speak to them. You don't have to solve everything in one conversation. Point them to the gospel. Right? We need the gospel as believers just as we did before we came to Christ. Point them to the good shepherd Listen to Jesus' commitment to his sheep in John 10. I'll read verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. Ever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Take them to passages that demonstrate Christ's love and care for us. Listen well. Let us see. Listen well. You want to listen and ask questions that would help you gather information that might help you interpret their problems biblically. Proverbs 18, 13 says, He who responds with the word before he hears, it is a folly and shame to him. Don't assume you know what they're going to say. Listen. Genuinely listen. And, and listen to help determine and assess, is this believer weak, faint-hearted, or unruly? Right? Sheep need different approaches. I know Janet taught a Wellspring lesson on 1 Thessalonians 5.14 back in February of 2020, so go listen to that. We want to listen and ask, ask questions to help discern any difference between the presenting problem and any deeper-rooted sin. Hey, I have an anger problem. Can we talk about my anger? My temptation is to run the passages that talk about keep your mouth closed. Listen before you speak. I want to just, let's just address anger. Why are you angry? What are the, what are the deeper motivations for your anger? Uh, we all, looking a little bit at James 4, like James 4, 1 through 3, what, is, what was more pleasing to you in that moment when you became angry than pleasing God? In that moment, were you, what were you willing to sin in order to get? Or what were you willing to sin in order to protect? When you sinned against that person, when you were angry with that person, what desire did that person become an obstacle or a threat to? Sometimes someone comes to us and says, hey, I need help with this. Ask questions. Listen, what's underneath that? We want to make sure that we're embracing biblical definitions. Let's call, speak about things as we're trying to help one another the way that God refers to them. Use biblical labels and terms so we can actually address them biblically. Drunkenness for alcohol, 
alcoholism. Hey, you know, I'm just being really, really frustrated. No, that was anger. And, and a selfishness and pride and impatience that was insisting upon your own way, a lack of trust in the Lord. What are the areas that we can actually use, use biblical terminology to help them see what God has to say about their situation? Right? This, was, this was you loving yourself. This wasn't your personality type. I've got some other passages for you to look at. But what I want to remind you is that when you open God's word, the scriptures are sufficient. We're aiming at heart change. We're aiming at Christ likeness. We're aiming at helping somebody put off sin, being renewed in their thinking and putting on righteousness. The great commission for the church is making disciples. And that includes evangelism, but it also includes instruction and caring for the souls of believers in this church. And it's not just the pastors who do that, but each and every one of us, no matter what ministry we're part of, we labor to be a functionally, a functional part of this body for the benefit of the whole body. We're not confident in ourselves, but actually confident in what God's word and God's spirit can actually accomplish. And one of the best places to do that in this church is in your small group. If you're not in one, join one. And then consider, how can I put this lesson into practice in my small group? If you want to turn to your homework, um, or you can listen. I, question one on your homework has to do with, what are some areas that I need to grow so I can serve sort of serve the spiritual needs of those in my area of influence? What do I need to grow in? And, and then more specific, question seven deals with, what are some recurring themes that routinely come up in my small group? When the ladies are talking to my small group, you know, you're, if your small group is anything like ours, the same things become to be repeated over and over. And there, there are recurring themes in different seasons in small group. What, what, what are the recurring themes in my small group? Do I feel equipped to step into those things and speak to those areas? What areas of my own thinking and familiarity with God's word do I need to shore up so that I can actually be of service for these ladies in my small group? Maybe that means memorizing some passages, reading a book to help you think through it biblically. But the point of today's lesson is to provide biblical motivation for taking what you've learned in Wellspring. That Christ has commissioned you to step into the church and care for those in the church with those same truths, with those same priorities. And so where there's areas where hey, I need to be strengthened in those, go after those. Think, be thinking about that as you do your homework. What are some specific areas that I can grow, particular areas that I can be strengthened that would actually help me care specifically for some of the spiritual needs of those in my small group? I've got a few resources listed at the bottom. It, again, we tried to take 40 hours of counseling material and put just a little bit of it in today. But these are just some resources that this just lights an appetite in you that you want to learn and grow in more of these thinking in these, this area. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made us alive together with your Son. 
that you have started a work in us and in the life of each and every believer that you are committed to bringing it to completion and you have ordained that those of us in the body of Christ, pastors, deacons, wives, moms, sons, daughters, that we all have a role to be used in your hands in your process of making believers more and more like you. Lord, in this world, we've often can take the easy path out. Oh, and let's, let's leave the hard work of discipleship, hard work of speaking truth to one another and aiming at putting sin to death and helping one another be more obedient to you and please you. Lord, that's hard work. It's impossible work. And it can't be successful unless you act. But Lord, you've promised that you actually act through the means of your word and the means of your people and the means of your spirit. Lord, I pray, Lord, this just would be an encouragement for us to take seriously your commission for us to be about the ministry of soul care, the ministry of discipleship, and that we would aim to be properly functioning members of this body, aiming at helping one another live for your glory and to be pleasing to you. In your name we pray. Amen.